that hymn leads us um, effectively into Exodus chapter 32, please. If you have your Bible, I would invite you to look with me at Exodus chapter 32. Uh, you can be seated as you turn to Exodus 32. Follow along, please, as I read. Exodus 32, the word of the Lord. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drank and rose up to play. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are the gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great generate nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountain and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger, Relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Isaac or Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring. They shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a sound of war in the camp. But he said, It's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat but the sound of singing that I hear. As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. He threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and he burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you? that you have brought such a great sin against them. And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, they're set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has come of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, 
Thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you. Go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. Moses said, today you have been ordained to the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to a place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people, because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. This is the word of the Lord. Would he add his blessing in teaching it to us this morning? Children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. The rest of you, hold your spot in Exodus 32. And then would you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul picks up on two accounts from the Exodus. One of them is the one we just read. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 through 5, Paul is warning the church about a very dangerous type of sin. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 1, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, our fathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and into the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. They drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. So that is a reflection on the narrative, on the historical account that we just read. And then he says this in verse 6. Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And on different accounts, 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man, God is faithful. He will not let you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. These things happen as an example for us. To be on guard for particular temptation, that it would not overtake us, but we would find in it the way of escape. The title I've given for today's sermon is Trusting in This and That. Moses had gone up to the mountain. He had gone back and forth. He goes up like a priest. He comes down like a prophet. He goes up like a priest. comes down like a prophet. He's been gone a while. And the people at the camp near the base of Mount Sinai look up, and what do they see? They see black smoke, and, and Moses has entered into it. And he's been gone a while. And they assume... He's probably been annihilated by whatever sort of terrifying presence they had heard the voice of, had thundered, and had turned Mount Sinai into smoke. So we find in this chapter that these people of God are expressing a misfit faith. A misfit faith. 
We know that faith is substantiated in what is hoped for, but not evidence, not seen, right? That's faith. And we are called, as the church, to walk by faith, what is not seen, but hoped for. They apparently had faith in what they could see, Moses. And now his absence causes them to panic. What will we trust in now? We can't see Moses right now. Now, I want to remind you that as we get to this section of Scripture, they do not have the tablets of law. Moses hasn't yet delivered them. They've been given to Moses as written by the finger of God. But they don't have them yet. However, we can be reminded, as we've been studying over the past few months, about the law, the moral law, the ceremonial law, the civil law. We can be reminded that everything God has given them for instruction has one common center. The glory of God. The exclusivity of God. Alone. We sang a song just a moment ago that talked about Christ alone is our hope. There's a great weight of responsibility in expressing and confessing God alone or Christ alone. The law points plainly in moral, ceremonial, civil, to the fact that the blazing center of all of God's law is that God himself is to be wholly separated from everything else. Have no other gods before me. Keep these things holy, set apart to the Lord. Be holy, for I am holy. So Paul picks up on this in Corinthians and says that text, that story in the wilderness is written for you and I to get together on this morning and read it and hear from God. Be careful. It's a warning as we read it. I'm thankful Corinthians does that. Corinthians says... This story is for you to be warned about a very real danger. Because, see, sometimes we come to the Bible and assume every story is for us. You know that happens, and it's not good. You know that happens. We treat every verse of the Bible like it's really about my life. And then we try to make some sort of weird applications of it. Like, oh, this is super cool for parenting. What? If that's not a verse about your parenting, then it's not a verse about your parenting. Okay? It's not to say we can't make a variety of applications, but sometimes we come to the Bible and we're like, what does this have to do with me? Here, it very clearly has to do with us a warning. And that warning has to do with a very urgent kind of sin. A very dangerous temptation. I'm going to say this part right here. I want you to pick it up, okay? Because it's going to come up again and again. What we are being warned against right now is a kind of danger that exists in the church to be syncretistic in our faith, in our trust, in our worship. Syncretistic. Now that word matters. I, I have to just explain the word. I, I can't find a different word. It would be less. So let me just explain what it means. To synchronize. To have multiple things operating together. That's what happened in the wilderness. They trusted in this and that. Ultimately, they wanted to trust in whatever was easiest to trust in that they could see. Here's, here's what I'm going to suggest over the next few moments. What happens... And Exodus 32 is not Israel taking opportunity to declare some sort of independence from God. They could have at this moment just become atheist. They didn't do that. They could have said, oh, Moses is gone, and he's the guy that keeps telling us we have to follow one God alone. Now he's gone, so what do we want to be? We want to believe in no gods? Okay, let's do that. They didn't do that. They didn't do that. They didn't even do polytheism. That's to have a bunch of gods. They did not even do that. They fashioned something 
to remind them of what had been provided. They had been delivered from Egypt. They wanted something they could put their eyes on and trust in. They did not want to walk by faith. They wanted to walk by sight. And so they synchronized something they could see with the provision that they had received. We've got this blessing. It came from somewhere. It wasn't us. Let's make something to resemble it. Now, the fact that Paul says, this warning is for you, means that as you sit here today on the 30th of July, this is a warning for you. And the fact that he says in verse 13, uh, verse, uh, is it 13? There is no temptation taking you but such as is common. It means not only is this warning for you, it means the probability that we're guilty of this is very high. I'm going to contend that we are all guilty of this. Just synchronizing. Just adding in something alongside our worship, our thankfulness, and our faith in God. Just adding something to it. In our guilt, there is hope only in Christ Jesus. But if today you would see your sin and reject the salvation of Christ, you too will be destroyed with your sin. Because syncretism is only a mistake until you've been warned that you're guilty of it. And then it becomes rebellion, lest you repent. So let me pray, and then I want to walk through three parts of this. First, I want to see the sin. Then there's a gospel truth called propitiation. It's when an interceder goes and speaks uh, a plea for peace from an angry God to objects that deserve wrath. It's called propitiation. So sin, propitiation, and then repentance. So there's these three really important themes of the gospel that are all here in Exodus 32. Sin, satisfying God's wrath. Like, how is God going to stop being angry? We've sinned. And then, what part does repentance play in all of that? Let's pray, okay? Father, I pray that you would lead us to see this warning that your Spirit says is for us. That we would see the events in the wilderness and we would not judge or condemn them, but rather we would learn about how susceptible we are. We want to see something that fulfills our understanding of you. We want to attribute thanks and trust to things that are not you. And we are, we are really in danger of this because of its subtlety. I, I don't think on this Sunday morning, Father, that you've led me to warn your people about blatant, idolatrous, or atheistic rebellion. But rather for the church to be careful about synchronizing our trust, our faith, our hope, our rejoicing in things that we might put alongside you. So, Father, would you please guard us this morning by the preaching of your word? We pray to you in the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, let's start with the first one. It's in verses 1 through 10. The subtleness of sin. I, uh, I, I believe very confidently that the most dangerous lies are those with elements of truth, right? They're the ones that are closest to the truth. If, if I said to you right now, for example, if I said to you right now, it is 2 o'clock in the morning, you would probably glance to the side of the room, you would see outside and go, no, that's not true at all. But if I said to you, it's 12.30 in the afternoon, wait, wait. You have to confirm that because it's close enough to truth that there might be some things that would say, well, poss possibly, the subtleness of sin is what we want to start with. Here, here we begin in verse 1. The people are missing Moses. They're unsure of his well-being. And they say to Aaron, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. They've grown impatient because they're afraid. 
fear lays at the root of this sin. Where is our leader? They had lost sight of him and therefore lost sight of hope. Now, I want to point something out. When you read this, in probably all of your translations, you read a plural, gods. However, we understand that they only made one calf. So why is it plural? It's only plural because the people are plural, asking for something else. So, in other words, the plural for gods is consistent with the plural verb. It doesn't necessarily need to be plurality of gods. It could just be this one thing. They would not accept what we would say is imageless worship. You know, that's one of the one of the commands. Do not make a graven image. You know, that makes something that you need to see to believe. We're gonna get to that later. They wouldn't accept imageless trust. You know, remember later uh, in Samuel when they said we, we need a human king? Who's leading us? God. No. No, is there somebody tall in the camp? Somebody we could all see? We'll take that. And they choose out Saul, which was a mistake. So now they say, who's leading us? Well, God, Yahweh. Well, I was okay when it was God leading Moses. Now I, I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I need a God with a face. I wonder if that's you. Do you find yourself more comforted when the thing you trust in is visible? Even if that thing is really not very trustworthy. Like it's kind of crummy provision. But you're like, at least I can see it. I wonder if you would say that. That might be me sometime. So this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, he's not around. So they don't regard their redemption as really being from Yahweh. And so they say, make us gods. And Aaron does a couple of things. First of all, he collects the gold, throws it into the fire, and gets his graving tools. That's important for what he tries to excuse later. Gets his graving tools and makes a golden calf. A calf is the word egal. It literally means a young bull in its full strength. So I wonder what you see when you hear, and they made this golden calf. Oh, calves, they're they're neat. This is not meant to be neat, cute, domesticated. This is meant to be a bull in full strength. Not really old, not really young, just dangerous. Now, why did they require something so strong to be the image that they needed? Because they needed something that they could depend in. The bull is a symbol of strength and reproductive power. This is obvious from everything from Baal worship in Canaan, which is pretty popular throughout this whole region of the wilderness. And it continues today into Hinduism. Even in their sin, Israel is looking for a God who acts, even if it's a false one. Show us a God who provides action that we can witness. They could have declared their independence, but they don't. They don't become atheists. They say, give us something to trust. So listen to this. This, this verse 5, 6, and 7, this speaks to what I mean as syncretism, okay? This is not atheism. This is not rejection of Yahweh. This is syncretism. Verse 5. And so Aaron built an altar. And Aaron said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. They haven't turned their back. And they rose up early the next day and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people sat down, they ate and they drank and they rose up to play. By the way, it says it twice. There's a more vivid one later in the book of Numbers that explicitly says this rising up to play is meant to be immoral activity. But I wonder, Moses is gone, Aaron's at the bottom of the mountain. 
The people are all excited. They're eating and drinking. And I wonder if, Mo, if Aaron thought this was a fulfillment of what God had promised in Exodus 3.12. God had said, I'm going to take care of you. Even as you go through the wilderness, I'm going to provide feast for you. And Aaron might have looked at this day and said, God has provided. And the people ate and drank and rose to play. The punishment for this sin is absolutely destruction. You can see that in verse 7 through 10. The punishment for this sin is destruction. Let me, let me make some applications of this point before moving on to the next one. Friend, when we get the nature of sin wrong, we get almost everything else wrong after it. And please understand that we are living in a culture, both churched and unchurched, that is trying to redefine the nature of sin. We live in a culture that is still content to maybe say something like, well, I really messed up, but nobody's perfect. And so we put all of our error into this category of accident. When we get the nature of sin wrong, we get a lot wrong. What they did here was to ask for something they could see to trust in. And I don't know, I don't know, I don't know where you're tracking with this account, this narrative, but maybe you're thinking, is, is that all that bad? They hadn't turned their back on Yahweh. Look at them. They, they rise up early. They, they make offerings and sacrifices to Yahweh. That would be the equivalent of saying they went to church. They were there. They were in worship. And they were in some sort of pseudo-obedience to what God had commanded. Syncretistically. One commentator says this. This was not a rejection of God but an attempt to find a comforting figure of God. God had led them, blessed them, saved them, provided for them, and given them hope for a future. But where was he? How would they memorialize all this hope and confidence? They would erect and display an image that would stand before them. End quote. I think the warning for us here is that like them, we will definitely experience regular occasions where we want to walk by sight. Um, let me give you an example. I've thought a lot about examples, and I have, I have a handful. And quite honestly, I had prayed this morning that the Lord would guard me in the examples that I choose to use. And I, I've come to the conclusion this is a good one. In my office, there are two pieces of paper that are diplomas. One says that I accomplished my undergraduate in about eight years. The other one says that I accomplished my graduate degree. And those two pieces of paper hang very near my desk while I write sermons every week. And... I could choose to glance up at those pieces of paper and go, oh, yes, yes, I can do this, and keep typing sermons. Or I could say, I know those pieces of paper there, but that doesn't really give me a lot of confidence. If it's not the Spirit of God working the Word of God through me, then I don't think we have a lot of hope. You see, in one way, I would look up and I would say, oh, whew, good thing that's there. Now I can go preach the gospel. Another way, I would say, I don't really care that that's there. Lest God works, right? So, I could be tempted to walk by sight. Show me something tangible that I can hope in. As the hand of God, of course. Next week, Lord willing, Pastor Josh is going to preach from Exodus 33. 
And part of the chapter of Exodus 33 is when Moses goes to God and he says, I, I'm not sure you're going to stick with us. We're not good. Can you show me yourself? You remember that? And he says, okay, I'll, I'll put you kind of in the cleft of these rocks and my glory will pass by. Why was Moses saying, I need to see something? Because he was afraid that God was going to abandon them in their sin. God was just going to say, I'm starting over. Which he had said he would do here. And he wouldn't break his promise. He's just going to start over with Moses. And Moses says, oh, I, I think you might abandon us. You remember when Thomas wasn't there the first time Jesus showed up in the upper room? And what is Thomas? They, they give the account. They're like, listen, we have seen the resurrected Jesus. Yeah. What does Thomas say? This is when he gets the wonderful nickname, Doubting Thomas. Lest I can put my fingers into the piercings. I, I got to see it. got to see it. What does Jesus say back to Thomas? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. This is a real problem. This is a real problem for the people of God in the Old Testament. And I'm suggesting, friend, I'm, I'm suggesting it humbly, it's a real problem for us right now. Listen to how frequent this sort of syncretism is. Hosea chapter 4 says this, My people inquire of a piece of wood. Their walking staff gives them oracles. A spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to go play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains. They burn offerings on hills under oaks, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. They need something they can see to lead them. I am going to contend that we, right now, all of us, myself, we, all of us, are vulnerable to syncretistic trust and guilty of syncretistic trust. I, I'm, I'm not condemning your soul in that statement. I am simply explaining what it means that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So what would we say when we're walking by faith and not by sight? Oh, where is the face that I can see to trust? The psalmist says this in 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And that should be our reoccurring theme. I trust in the unseen God of heaven and earth. That should be our theme. But it won't always be. We'll fall and we'll be guilty. We'll get distracted. We'll get very, very distracted. Some of you have been raised with outstanding parents. Praise God for good, God-fearing, gospel-proclaiming parents, right? Right? And there may come times in your life where you say something in your deepest soul like, where will my help come from? And you might be tempted in that moment to say, mom and dad, they're good, God-fearing, gospel-proclaiming parents. They will be my help. And that may be easy and natural and totally familiar but what when we don't what happens when we don't say my help comes from the lord who made heaven and earth then let's go on to our second point sinners need for propitiation verse 11 through 14 we have already read that the lord's anger burned hot but moses implores the lord his god and his anger he says, I'm just going to wipe this people from the face of the earth. The Lord could do that. He, he says, I won't wipe them all out. Moses, I'm going to start over with you. Moses, however, steps in between the sinful people and the righteous God and makes intercession. 
So he is operating this way, very much like a priest. He's come back up from the people, up to the presence of God, and he says, please, don't destroy them. Now, friend, would you listen really closely to this next part? On what basis can Moses hope to influence the wrath of God to be appeased? Propitiation means burns hot, satisfied. Propitiation, it's appeased. On what basis does Moses think if I point out these two things, it's our best hope of God's anger being satisfied. One's in verse 12, and the other is in verse 13. I want you to know, he doesn't say, wait, you're loving, you're gracious, you're merciful, you're good. He pleads with God on the basis of these two things. Look at verse 12. Why should the Egyptians be able to say falsely, with evil intent did he, that being God, bring them out to kill them in the mountain and consume them from the face of the earth? What will people say about you? That's the first basis for interceding and satisfying the wrath of God. What about your testimony? Second, verse 13... Remember, Abraham, Isaac, Israel, that's Jacob, your servant to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, the land that I have promised, and I will give your offspring, I will give it to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. The first thing is, what will people say about you? The second thing is, what have you said you are going to do? There is no plea for, they didn't mean it, it was a mistake. There's no plea for, aren't you supposed to be loving? What about your testimony? And what about what you've promised? Verse 14, And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing to his people. The faithfulness of God, his promises and his testimonies, are what provide satisfaction or propitiation for his wrath. Ours is their sin and then some. When reading this story of Exodus 32, this historic account, we see that the penalty for the sin is death. However, as we read in verse 11 through 14, we see that intercession to God serves to satisfy His wrath and His anger. And I want to speak the hope of that intercession for us as we are sinners. Romans 3.23, I referenced a little earlier. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we go on to 24. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation, the wrath-satisfying sacrifice. God put Christ forward to intercede for us and satisfy His wrath by His blood. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at this present time so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of all those who have faith in Jesus. The sin in the wilderness is egregious sin, it's horrific. It is that dangerous version of idolatry that doesn't just say, I'm turning my back on Yahweh. Let's see what else there is. Or, I'm turning my back on Yahweh. I don't want any gods. I want to be my own boss. It's not that. It's that subtle sin. It's that subtle sin. Oh, thank you, God, that you are sending Messiah and the law. Thank you, God, that you have given salvation to sinners by grace alone and baptism Thank you, God, that you have given a gracious adoption as long as we do well. Those are all dangerous, pseudo-half-truth, syncretistic basis for trust. And I, I think that you and I are given a 
very kind warning about just how dangerous those subtle lies are. Lest we see ourselves guilty of that sin, oh, but Jesus died on the cross, unless we see ourselves somehow universally excused because, in fact, his blood does plead for propitiation, I want to remind you, 2 Corinthians 7, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But there is a grief that only produces death. So let's go into our third point of gospel truth, and that is seeing the fruit of repentance. Verse 15 through 35. When John is doing the work of uh, forerunning, he's, he's telling the world, the Messiah is coming, I'm, I'm leading the way, the Messiah is coming. He says at one of his baptisms in Matthew 3, but when he saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he says to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath that is coming, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I want you to understand repentance in that language. It's a tree. And I wonder if your tree is producing its seasonal fruit or not. So we have sin. We have the sacrifice of Christ interceding and propitiating, satisfying his wrath. But then we have repentance. Who showed you that you must produce repentance? I want to show you from this text, and I'm going to go quickly. I want to show you three things that this text reminds us that repentance is not. Just three things that repentance is not. Would you look at me at the first one in verse 19? Repentance is not better law-keeping. I think that one's very important to say and probably requires several moments to expound on. I don't have that time this morning. Repentance is not better law-keeping. Verse 19. As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. We might be tempted to say, oh, the people have sinned. What they need right now is the tablets. Better law-keeping wasn't what they needed. Better law-keeping was not going to atone for the sin they had committed. Better law-keeping was not going to guard them from committing this sin again the next day. Secondly, repentance is not regret. This one's, we see this one a lot, right? You see this one in your children. They're fighting in the other room. They're both telling you the other one is guilty. You come around the corner just in time to see a sin committed. And then they turn and see that you witnessed their sin, and they are immediately sorry because you witnessed the sin. I, I want you to see here that repentance is not regret. Look at what Moses does. He took the calf that they had made, he burns it in the fire, grounds it up to, small, uh, to, to fine powder, scatters it on the water, and says, drink. Uh, no thanks? I, I don't, I don't want to drink that. You have to drink it. I really regret that we did it, because now we're having to drink it. That's not repentance. Third, Repentance is definitely not excuse-making. Repentance is definitely not excuse-making. Verse 21, Moses says to Aaron, Why did this people, what did this people do to you that you've brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Look, you know these people. They just want to do bad. This is not my fault. That is not repentance. The second thing Aaron says, and this is the one that even because you were following along closely as I read, you chuckled at this. So I said to them, if you have any gold, bring it here. I put it in the fire and voila. And we don't, that's, that's preposterous. But there are versions of that that you hear from time to time, or there are versions of that you say from time to time. This, this is not my fault. I was raised in syncretism. Syncretism seems like the thing that makes me most relevant in my culture. This is not my fault. 
Let me read for you then from this text what repentance is. Friend, repentance is changing sides. Repentance is changing sides. Verse 26. Then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And who did? The sons of Levi. That's all it says. The sons of Levi came over. Moses is standing there at one of the gates. People are just running licentiously in all sorts of evil. And Moses is like, stop. Who is on the Lord's side? Not Moses' side. Who's on the Lord's side? Remember last week I told you that the craftsmen who made the, the, the furniture would be filled with the Spirit? And we talked about, well, what does that mean? What does it mean they're going to be filled with the Spirit? It means they're be, they'll be given power to do or say what God commanded them to do or say? John tells us that the Spirit exists, and we can't see it, but we can see what it's doing. And I'm going to contend that the Spirit filled the, the Levites, and they came and stood on the Lord's side. There's no other explanation. They weren't somehow genetically disposed to say, oh yeah, we'll be on the Lord's side. But rather, the Spirit moved like the wind, could not be seen, but the effects are obvious. The Levites gather around Moses. And Moses says to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you. Go back and forth from this eastern to the western gate, north to south. Go back and forth and mow down your brothers and companions and neighbors. And the sons of Levi did. And on that day, 3,000 men fell. 3,000 men. That's a third, nearly a third more than all those who perished on 9-11. Sometimes we read these Bible stories we've read a lot, and we're like, oh, 3,000? A third more, nearly, than who perished in 9-11. And Moses said, Today you've been ordained to the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Uh, I know that the temptation is dangerous because of its subtlety. But as we read that account, I want you to know the consequences are not subtle. The consequences are destruction. The consequences are death. Verse 31. So Moses, the priest, goes back up to the Lord and says, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book. And... The Lord said back to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to a place where I have spoken to you. Behold, the angel shall lead you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. So, the danger that we all sit in, and I, I want to speak to you, I, I want kind of the hairs in the back of your neck to stand up and you to say, Lord, search me and see if there be this wicked way in me. I want you to be prayerful that way. What are those things that I have said I can trust in that aren't God? What are those things I need to see to feel safe? I need to hold them. It's syncretism, and the penalty is death. Our sin is ever before the Lord. And Moses is a sort of high priest, but we have the high priest who intercedes, and his blood offers propitiation, and God's wrath is satisfied. And the Spirit of God works in us, and the evidence is fruit of repentance.
The question is, if the word of the Lord says Exodus 32 is recorded as a warning for us, then can we hear the warning about the subtleness of syncretism? Can we see the gravity of syncretistic temptation and its punishment? And can we conclude, like the tax collector who went to the temple, forgive me, I am a sinner? And can we see Christ only as the wrath-satisfying propitiation for our sin of syncretism? And will we then be led by the Spirit when the question is asked, who is on the Lord's side? Who is going to say, God only, God alone? Will the Spirit of God lead us to say, no more syncretism, just Yahweh. Let me pray. Father, this plea is urgent to you. We live in a culture that has conditioned us to say, if we're going to fit in, we have to give our trust, our thanks, our faith, our appreciation to you and a bunch of other things. Father, that that happens to us, that, that imposes on us, it pressures us, it persuades us. And so your word is good. It's given us this warning to look back into Exodus 32 and be cautioned because there's no temptation taken us but such as is common to man. This is a reoccurring and common temptation. It's dangerous in its subtlety. And you have made a way of escape. So let us then delight ourselves in the Lord. Let us rely only on you. Trust only in you. Lean not on our own understandings. In all our ways, acknowledge you and have paths that are directed by you. So, Father, my prayer as one member of this church is that you would, by your Spirit, guard us, produce change of repentance in us, but then, Lord, thank you for the blessing of community that can have a zeal and a passion to not be syncretistic, but can invite and encourage and support and help each other that we would avoid this temptation to your praise and your glory. Thank you for fathering us through your word and shepherding us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I would invite you to stand with me, please. We'll sing together.